why won't you admit your mistakes? I think people generally don't like to admit mistakes. You might disagree with my generalization. So rather, I'll say some people don't like to admit mistakes. And the larger the mistake, the less comfortable they are about admitting them. This applies to organizations too. Of course, the larger the organization, the easier it is to cover up the mistake, at least for a while. That is due in part to resources available to deploy in covering up. Who has never made a mistake? Come on, fess up. My hand is down. Okay, so if we've all made mistakes, why shouldn't we admit them? Isn't that just part of being human? Well, yes. However, making mistakes is more nuanced than that. We all make mistakes. Sometimes, though, we shouldn't. There are such things as deliberate mistakes made to sabotage a situation or a person. Then there are mistakes we make when there is evidence, data, or advice that we should or shouldn't take a particular action that we choose to disregard. And of course, there are mistakes we repeat because we haven't learned from them the first time. All of these are examples of situations where one might not want to admit the mistake. There can be ramifications one would prefer to avoid if possible. When it comes to seriously major mistakes, sometimes the guy the buck stops with falls on his sword. Sometimes he will blame subordinates, but it's always the head guy that the spotlight falls on. This is true of private companies, public corporations, and government agencies. It's not generally true, however, of politicians who never seem to accept responsibility and display an innate rat cunning in avoiding blame. When it comes to the COVID pandemic, another technique comes to the fore. That is, don't admit the mistake, however obvious. This is often coupled with doubling down. In the case of COVID, this is much like insisting that black is white when everyone can see the color is black. This technique has been seen from pharmaceutical companies, advocacy media, health departments, various NGOs and governments. In this particular case, there has been a concerted and coordinated effort to effect a cover-up. The COVID medical network represent hundreds of clinicians and medical researchers who are not named, as they feel their careers would be at risk if they voiced their opinions openly. A damning indictment on APRA, who have overstepped their authority. The COVID Medical Network have written an open letter to ATAGI, TGA, and the Federal Health Minister following a lack of satisfactory responses to other letters from themselves and other medical academics, clinicians, and legal practitioners to Australian politicians and health authorities. The letter has been co-signed by a number of eminent practitioners in their fields who do not fear the risk of career oblivion as they're retired. The letter contains a long and detailed list of various concerns that remain unaddressed, sidestepped or answered superficially. And a link to that letter is below the podcast. An example of this is the response to Freedom of Information Request 3586, which pertains to data on deaths reported possibly relating to COVID-19 vaccines. The 196-page response is available online, and the link to that is also available 
below the podcast. It's almost completely redacted, all 196 pages. The only information provided is the ages of the deceased. There really is nothing to see here, folks. Move along. Most of the information with which the public has been provided about protection from the virus and the associated jabs started off as misinformation. With more data becoming available over the ensuing months and the official narrative morphing when necessary, but largely remaining the same, the official line is now one of disinformation or outright lies. That Pfizer and other manufacturers would perpetrate such acts upon the citizens of the world is understandable. They are amoral and they do it for money. Huge amounts and maybe other reasons. How, though, do we excuse the TGA, who are supposed to ensure that unsafe drugs are not permitted to be used? How do we excuse them for removing permission to use drugs that have been used for decades for early treatment of COVID-19? How do we excuse the health department, under the leadership of Nicholas Spurrier in this state, for advising mandates that don't work and for coercion to achieve compliance? How do we excuse official early treatment of COVID-19 to be, quote, take a panadine and come back when you need to go to hospital, unquote. How do we excuse the police commissioner, Grant Stevens in South Australia, for declaring and continuing a state of emergency with absurd orders based, according to him, under oath in a court of law, on nothing more than following advice from a health department? An example of the absurd orders, in a pub, you needed to be sitting down when drinking alcohol, but it was okay to stand up if it was non-alcoholic. How do we excuse APRA for the threats and punitive action against doctors who are simply trying to do their job, including informing patients of known risks? How do we excuse the advocacy media for their enthusiastic, blinkered, uncritical obedience to the official narrative? How do we excuse Greg Hunt, the Federal Minister for Health and Aged Care at the time, for his lack of oversight on his portfolio? Does it need to be pointed out the vast majority of deaths from COVID in the early days resulted from aged people who had contacted COVID-19 being sent from hospital back to their aged care facilities, where it spread like wildfire and decimated the inmates? How do we excuse the former treasurer for his lack of oversight in allowing the economy to be hobbled? How do we excuse the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, for his willingness to place the blame at the feet of the states and refusal to accept leadership responsibilities? And on it goes. Everyone who had influence was behind the push for blind obedience. How do we excuse this institutional malfeasance, this total betrayal of public trust? Sadly, mass formation psychosis means that many, if not most people, did not see this as malfeasance. They did not recognise the actions as a betrayal of trust. Many still do not. Despite mask mandates being mostly lifted in mid-April, there are still a noticeable number of people who wear masks everywhere, including outdoors and when driving. They clearly believe, despite plenty of evidence to the contrary, and no evidence in support, that masks work, even when not worn properly. Up until the 14th of October, the majority of people would sit in a dentist's waiting room with a mask on, 
at least 1.5 metres from anyone else, mandates not having been lifted for healthcare facilities. Then remove the mask in the dentist's chair. Not one of the dentists remained one and a half metres from their unmasked patients, obviously. Then they put the mask back on when leaving the chair. Yet this absurdity was silently accepted and rarely questioned out loud. If the object of the exercise from the beginning of 2020 was protection from the SARS-CoV-2 virus, it was a complete failure. If the objective was to obtain compliance, they succeeded brilliantly. With the recent release of the review into Australia's handling of COVID-19, the veil of deceit has been removed and denial is no longer an option. The emperor always knew he had no clothes. Now, all the townsfolk can see they've been living in a fairy tale too. All they have to do is look. <laughs>